Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 1 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 1. It has been remarked that the peculiarly English habit of self-suppression in matters of the emotions puts the Englishman at a great disadvantage in moments of unusual stresses. In the smaller matters of the general run of life he will be impeccable and not to be moved. But in sudden confrontations of anything but physical dangers he is apt, he is indeed almost certain, to go to pieces very badly. This, at least, was the view of Christopher Teachens, and he very much dreaded his interview with Lord Port Scatho, because he feared that he must be near breaking point. In electing to be peculiarly English in habits and in as much of his temperament as he could control, for though no man can choose the land of his birth or his ancestry, he can, if he have industry and determination, so watch over himself as materially to modify his automatic habits, Teachens had quite advisedly and of set purpose adopted a habit of behaviour that he considered to be the best in the world for the normal life. If every day and all day long you chatter at high pitch and with the logic and lucidity of the Frenchman, if you shout in self-assertion, with your hat on your stomach, bowing from a stiff spine, and by implication threaten all day long to shoot your interlocutor like the Prussian, if you are as lacrimally emotional as the Italian, or as dryly and epigrammatically imbecile over unessentials as the American, you will have a noisy, troublesome and thoughtless society without any of the surface calm that should distinguish the atmosphere of men when they are together. You will never have deep armchairs in which to sit for hours in clubs thinking of nothing at all, or of the off-theory in bowling. On the other hand, in the face of death, except at sea by fire, railway accident or accidental drowning in rivers, in the face of madness, passion, dishonour or, and particularly prolonged mental strain, you will have all the disadvantage of the beginner at any game and may come off very badly indeed. Fortunately, death, love, public dishonour and the like are rare occurrences in the life of the average man, so that the great advantage would seem to have lain with English society, at any rate before the later months of the year 1914. Death for man came but once, the danger of death so seldom as to be practically negligible. Love of a distracting kind was a disease merely of the weak. Public dishonour for persons of position, so great was the hushing up power of the ruling class and the power of absorption of the remoter colonies, was practically unknown. Teachens found himself now faced by all these things, coming upon him cumulatively and rather suddenly, and he had before him an interview that might cover them all, and with a man whom he much respected and very much desired not to hurt. He had to face these, moreover, with a brain two-thirds of which felt numb. It was exactly like that. It was not so much that he couldn't use what brain he had as trenchantly as ever, it was that there were whole regions of fact upon which he could no longer call in support of his argument. His knowledge of history was still practically negligible. He knew nothing whatever of the humaner letters, and, what was far worse, nothing at all of the higher and more sensuous phases of mathematics. And the comings back of these things was much slower than he had confessed to Sylvia.' 
It was with these disadvantages that he had had to face Lord Port Scatho. Lord Port Scatho was the first man of whom Sylvia Teachins had thought when she had been considering of men who were absolutely honourable, entirely benevolent, and rather lacking in constructive intelligence. He had inherited the management of one of the most respected of the great London banks, so that his commercial and social influences were very extended. He was extremely interested in promoting low church interests, the reform of the divorce laws and sports for the people, and he had a great affection for Sylvia Teachens. He was forty-five, beginning to put on weight, but by no means obese. He had a large, quite round head, very high-coloured cheeks that shone as if with frequent ablutions, an uncropped dark moustache, dark, very cropped smooth hair, brown eyes, a very new grey tweed suit, a very new grey trilby hat, a black tie and a gold ring, and very new patent leather boots that had white calf tops. He had a wife almost the spit of himself in face, figure, probity, kindliness and interests, except that for his interest in sports for the people, she substituted that for maternity hospitals. His heir was his nephew, Mr Brownlee, known as Brownie, who would also be physically the exact spit of his uncle, except that, not having put on flesh, he appeared to be taller and that his moustache and hair were both a little longer and more fair. This gentleman entertained for Sylvia Teachens a gloomy and deep passion that he considered to be perfectly honourable because he desired to marry her after she had divorced her husband. Teachens he desired to ruin because he wished to marry Mrs. Teachens, and partly because he considered Teachens to be an undesirable person of no great means. Of this passion, Lord Portscatho was ignorant. He now came into the Teachens' dining room, behind the servant, holding an open letter. He walked rather stiffly because he was very much worried. He observed that Sylvia had been crying and was still wiping her eyes. He looked round the room to see if he could see in it anything to account for Sylvia's crying. Teachens was still sitting at the head of the lunch table. Sylvia was rising from a chair beside the fireplace. Lord Port Scatho said, I want to see you, Teachens, for a minute on business. Teachens said, I can give you ten minutes. Lord Port Scatho said, Mrs. Teachens, perhaps? He waved the open letter towards Mrs. Teachens. Teachens said, No, Mrs. Teachens will remain. He desired to say something more friendly. He said, Sit down. Lord Port Scatho said, I shan't be stopping a minute, but really, and he moved the letter, but not with so wide a gesture, towards Sylvia. I have no secrets from Mrs. Teachens, Teachens said. Absolutely none. Lord Portscatho said, No, no, of course not, but Teachens said, Similarly, Mrs. Teachens has no secrets from me. Again, absolutely none. Sylvia said, I don't, of course, tell Teachens about my maid's love affairs or what the fish costs every day. Teachens said, You'd better sit down. He added on an impulse of kindness, as a matter of fact I was just clearing up things for Sylvia to take over, this command. It was part of the disagreeableness of his mental disadvantages that upon occasion he could not think of other than military phrases. He felt intense annoyance. 
Lord Portskay, though, affected him with some of the slight nausea that in those days you felt at contact with a civilian who knew none of your thoughts, phrases, or preoccupations. He added, nevertheless, equably, one has to clear up, I'm going out. Lord Portskay, though, said hastily, yes, yes, I won't keep you, one has so many engagements in spite of the war. His eyes wandered in bewilderment. Teachings could see them at last fixing themselves on the oil stains that Sylvia's salad dressing had left on his collar and green tabs. He said to himself that he must remember to change his tunic before he went to the war office. He must not forget. Lord Port Scatho's bewilderment at these oil stains was such that he had lost himself in the desire to account for them. You could see the slow thoughts moving inside his square, polished brown forehead. Teachens wanted very much to help him. He wanted to say, It's about Sylvia's letter that you've got in your hand, isn't it? But Lord Port Scatho had entered the room with the stiffness, with the odd, high-collared sort of gait that on formal and unpleasant occasions Englishmen use when they approach each other, braced up a little like strange dogs meeting in the street. In view of that, Teachens couldn't say, Sylvia but it would add to the formality and unpleasantness if he said again, Mrs. Teachens, that wouldn't help Port though. Sylvia said suddenly, You don't understand, apparently. My husband is going out to the front line tomorrow morning. It's for the second time. Lord Port though sat down suddenly on a chair beside the table. With his fresh face and brown eyes suddenly anguished, he exclaimed, But my dear fellow, you, good God, and then to Sylvia, I beg your pardon. To clear his mind, he said again to Teachens, You, going out tomorrow? And when the idea was really there, his face suddenly cleared. He looked with a swift, averted glance at Sylvia's face, and then for a fixed moment at Teachens' oil-stained tunic. Teachens could see him explaining to himself with immense enlightenment that that explained both Sylvia's tears and the oil on the tunic, for Port Scatho might well imagine that officers went to the conflict in their oldest clothes. But if his puzzled brain cleared, his distressed mind became suddenly distressed doubly. He had to add to the distress he had felt on entering the room and finding himself in the midst of what he took to be a highly emotional family parting, and Titchens knew that during the whole war Port Scatho had never witnessed a family parting at all. Those that were not inevitable he would avoid like the plague, and his own nephew and all his wife's nephews were in the bank. That was quite proper, for if the ennobled family of Brownlee were not of the ruling class, who had to go, they were of the administrative class, who were privileged to stay. So he had seen no partings. Of his embarrassed hatred of them he gave immediate evidence, for he first began several sentences of praise of Teachin's heroism, which he was unable to finish and then, getting quickly out of his chair, exclaimed, In the circumstances, then, the, the little matter I came about, I, I couldn't, of course, think. Teachin said, No, don't go. The matter you came about, I know all about it, of course. Had better be settled. Portskato sat down again. His jaw fell slowly. Under his bronzed complexion, his skin became a shade paler. He said at last, You know what I came about? But then... His ingenuous and kindly mind could be seen to be working with reluctance. His athletic figure drooped. He pushed the letter that he still held along the tablecloth towards Teachens. He said in the voice of one awaiting a reprieve, But you can't be aware, not of this letter. 
Tejans left the letter on the cloth. From there he could read the large handwriting on the blue-grey paper. Mrs Christopher Teachins presents her compliments to Lord Port Scatho and the Honourable Court of Benches of the Inn. He wondered where Sylvia had got hold of that phraseology. He imagined it to be fantastically wrong. He said, I've already told you that I know about this letter, as I've already told you that I know, and I will add that I approve, of all Mrs Teachins' actions. With his hard blue eyes, he looked brow-beatingly into Port Scatho's soft brown orbs, knowing that he was sending the message, Think what you please and be damned to you. The gentle brown things remained on his face, then they filled with an expression of deep pain. Port Scatho cried, But good God, then... He looked at Teachens again. His mind, which took refuge from life in the affairs of the low church, of divorce law reform and of sports for the people, became a sea of pain at the contemplation of strong situations. His eyes said, For heaven's sake, do not tell me that Mrs. Dusherman, the mistress of your dearest friend, is the mistress of yourself, and that you take this means of wreaking a vulgar spite on them. Teachers, leaning heavily forward, made his eyes as enigmatic as he could. He said very slowly and very clearly, Mrs. Teachens is, of course, not aware of all the circumstances. Port Scavo threw himself back in his chair. I don't understand, he said. I do not understand. How am I to act? You do not wish me to act on this letter? You can't. Teachens, who found himself, said, You had better talk to Mrs. Teachens about that. I will say something myself later. In the meantime, let me say that Mrs. Teachens would seem to me to be quite within her rights. A lady, heavily veiled, comes here every Friday and remains until four of the Saturday morning. If you are prepared to palliate the proceedings, you had better do so to Mrs. Teachens. Port Scatho turned agitatedly on Sylvia. I can't, of course, palliate, he said. God forbid, but my dear Sylvia... My dear Mrs. Teachens, in the case of two people so much esteemed, we have, of course, argued the matter of principle. It is a part of a subject I have very much at heart, the granting of divorce, civil divorce at least, in cases in which one of the parties to the marriage is in a lunatic asylum. I have sent you the pamphlets of E.S.P. Haynes that we publish. I know that as a Roman Catholic you hold strong views. I do not assure you stand for latitude. He became then simply eloquent. He really had the matter at heart, one of his sisters having been for many years married to a lunatic. He expatiated on the agonies of this situation all the more eloquently in that it was the only form of human distress which he had personally witnessed. Sylvia took a long look at Teachens, he imagined, for counsel. He looked at her steadily for a moment, then at Port Scatho, who was earnestly turned to her, then back at her. He was trying to say, Listen to Port Scatho for a minute. I need time to think of my course of action. He needed, for the first time in his life, time to think of his course of action. He had been thinking with his undermind ever since Sylvia had told him that she had written her letter to the benchers denouncing McMaster and his woman. Ever since Sylvia had reminded him that Mrs. Dusherman in the Edinburgh to London Express of the day before the war had been in his arms, he had seen with extraordinary clearness a great many North Country scenes, though he could not affix names to all the places. The forgetfulness of the names was abnormal. He ought to know the names of places from Berwick down the Vale of York. But that he should have forgotten the incidents was normal enough. 
They had been of little importance. He preferred not to remember the phases of his friend's love affair. Moreover, the events that happened immediately afterwards had been of a nature to make one forget quite normally what had just preceded them. That Mrs. Dusherman should be sobbing on his shoulder in a locked corridor carriage hadn't struck him as in the least important. She was the mistress of his dearest friend. She had had a very trying time for a week or so, ending in a violent, nervous quarrel with her agitated lover. She was, of course, crying off the effects of the quarrel, which had been all the more shaking in that Mrs. Dusherman, like himself, had always been almost too self-contained. As a matter of fact, he did not himself like Mrs. Dusherman, and he was pretty certain that she herself more than a little disliked him, so that nothing but their common feeling for McMaster had brought them together. General Campion, however, was not to know that. He had looked into the carriage in the way one does in a corridor just after the train had left... He couldn't remember the name. Doncaster. No, Darlington. It wasn't that. At Darlington there was a model of the rocket. Or perhaps it isn't the rocket. An immense clumsy leviathan of a locomotive by... by... the great gloomy stations of the north-going trains. Durham. No. Holmwick. No. Wooler. By God. Wooler. The junction for Bamborough. It had been in one of the castles at Bamborough that he and Sylvia had been staying with the sandbarks. Then a name had come into his mind spontaneously. Two names. It was perhaps the turn of the tide, for the first time, to be marked with a red stone. After this some name, sometimes on the tip of the tongue, might come over. He had, however, to get on. The sandbarks then, and he and Sylvia, others too, had been in Bamborough since mid-July, Eaton and Harrow at Lord's, waiting for the real house parties that would come with the twelfth. He repeated these names and dates to himself for the personal satisfaction of knowing that, amongst the repairs effected in his mind, these two remained, Eaton and Harrow, the end of the London season, twelfth of August, grouse shooting begins. It was pitiful. When General Campion had come up to rejoin his sister, he, Teachens, had stopped only two days. The coolness between the two of them remained. It was the first time they had met, except in court after the accident. For Mrs. Warnock, with grim determination, had sued the General for the loss of her horse. It had lived all right, but it was only fit to draw a lawnmower for cricket pitches. Mrs. Wannop then had gone bald-headed for the general, partly because she wanted the money, partly because she wanted a public reason for breaking with the sandbarks. The general had been equally obstinate, and had undoubtedly perjured himself in court. Not the best, not the most honourable, the most benevolent man in the world would not turn oppressor of the widow and orphan when his efficiency as a chauffeur was impugned, or the fact brought to light that at a very dangerous turning he hadn't sounded his horn. Teachens had sworn that he hadn't, the general that he had. There could not be any question of doubt, for the horn was a beastly thing that made a prolonged noise like that of a terrified peacock. So Teachens had not, till the end of that July, met the general again. It had been quite a proper thing for gentlemen to quarrel over, and was quite convenient, though it had cost the general fifty pounds for the horse, and, of course, a good bit over for costs. Lady Claudine had refused to interfere in the matter. She was privately of opinion that the general hadn't sounded his horn, but the general was both a passionately devoted and explosive brother. She had remained closely intimate with Sylvia, mildly cordial with Teachens, and had continued to ask the Wannops to such of her garden parties as the general did not attend. 
She was also very friendly with Mrs. Dusherman. Teachins and the general had met with the restrained cordiality of English gentlemen who had some years before accused each other of perjury in a motor accident. On the second morning a violent quarrel had broken out between them on the subject of whether the general had or hadn't sounded his horn. The general had ended up by shouting, really shouting, by God, if I ever get you under my command. Teachins remembered that he had quoted and given the number of a succinct paragraph in King's Regs dealing with the fate of general or higher field officers who gave their subordinates bad confidential reports because of private quarrels. The general had exploded into noises that ended in laughter. "'What a ragbag of a mind you have, Chrissy,' he said. "'What's King's Regs to you, and how do you know it's paragraph 66 or whatever you say it is? I don't.' He added more seriously, what a fellow you are for getting into obscure rows. What in the world do you do it for? That afternoon, Tidgets had gone to stop a long way up in the moors with his son, the nurse, his sister Effie and her children. They were the last days of happiness he was to know, and he hadn't known so many. He was then content. He played with his boy, who, thank God, was beginning to grow healthy at last. He walked about the moors with his sister Effie, a large, plain parson's wife, who had no conversation at all, though at times they talked of their mother. The moors were like enough to those above Groby to make them happy. They lived in a bare, grim farmhouse, drank great quantities of buttermilk and ate great quantities of Wensleydale. It was the hard, frugal life of his desire, and his mind was at rest. His mind was at rest because there was going to be a war. From the first moment of his reading the paragraph about the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, he had known that calmly and with assurance. Had he imagined that this country would come in, he would not have known a mind at rest. He loved this country for the run of its hills, the shape of its elm trees, and the way the heather running uphill to the skyline meets the blue of the heavens. War for this country could only mean humiliation, spreading under the sunlight, an almost invisible pall over the elms, the hills, the heather, like the vapour that spread from, oh, Middlesbrough. We were fitted neither for defeat nor for victory. We could be true to neither friend nor foe, not even to ourselves. But of war for us he had no fear, he saw our ministry sitting tight till the opportune moment and then grabbing a French Channel port or a few German colonies as the price of neutrality. And he was thankful to be out of it, for his back doorway out, his second, was the French Foreign Legion. First Sylvia, then that, two tremendous disciplines for the soul and for the body. The French he admired for their tremendous efficiency, for their frugality of life, for the logic of their minds, for their admirable achievements in the arts, for their neglect of the industrial system, for their devotion above all to the 18th century. It would be restful to serve, if only as a slave, people who saw clearly, coldly, straight, not obliquely and with hypocrisy, only such things as should deviously conduce to the standard of comfort of hogs and to lecheries winked at, he would rather sit for hours on a bench in a barrack room, polishing a badge in preparation for the cruelest of route marches of immense lengths under the Algerian sun. For as to the Foreign Legion, he had had no illusion. You were treated not as a hero, but as a whipped dog. 
He was aware of all the astecoteries, the cruelties, the weight of the rifle, the cells. You would have six months of training in the desert and then be hurtled into the line to be massacred without remorse, as foreign dirt. But the prospect seemed to him one of deep peace. He had never asked for soft living and now was done with it. The boy was healthy, Sylvia, with the economies they had made, very rich, and even at that date he was sure that if the friction of himself teachings were removed, she would make a good mother. Obviously he might survive, but after that tremendous physical drilling, what survived would not be himself, but a man with cleaned, sand-dried bones, a clear mind. His private ambition had always been for saintliness. He must be able to touch pitch and not be defiled. That, he knew, marked him off as belonging to the sentimental branch of humanity. He couldn't help it. Stoic or Epicurean, caliph in the harem or dervish desiccating in the sand, one or the other you must be. And his desire was to be a saint of the Anglican variety, as his mother had been, without convent, ritual vows or miracles to be performed by your relics. That sainthood, truly, the Foreign Legion might give you, the desire of every English gentleman from Colonel Hutchinson upwards, a mysticism. End of part two, chapter two, section one.